you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and join us in Luke chapter 7 this morning. Last week, we spent our time looking at the faith of someone who's known as a centurion. And this week, we're going to be looking at something that almost feels, maybe as we read it, you say, was well, this in contradiction to what we just studied last week? And it absolutely is not in contradiction. Last week, we talked about what it means to have faith when we're kind of a up against it and we're asking God to do things. And this week we're going to look at what happens when our faith and doubt get all mixed together. Because uh, it's hard to be a believer and never experience doubt, isn't it? I mean, if we're just being honest with one another, uh, maybe the church answer would be that I've, my faith has never wavered. I've always had faith that God's going to do. But the truth of it is, sometimes when the night is a little bit darker and you get kind of woken up in the middle of the night, worried about those things that are in your life. Sometimes you do kind of find those doubts start to creep in. And how do you deal with that? How do you find yourself in the middle of that and work through it? Well, luckily for us in Luke's gospel, the Bible uh, just uh, kind of helps us with that. And I think it's appropriate for us to always preach about faith because faith is commanded in the scripture. You can't be saved without faith. But uh, as people of faith, we live in faith but today we do need to reconcile faith and doubt, how they go together when they try to mingle with one another and how we separate them. And I want us to read this interaction from Luke chapter seven that some of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples had with Jesus because John was having some doubt, John the Baptist was. And to be honest, we've studied about him, so you might remember about him a few things that might be important to you. One is that he's the forerunner, the prophet that's going to announce the coming Messiah. He's related to Jesus because his uh, mother and Jesus' mother Mary were related. And, and so you understand that John has announced Jesus already as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world when we get to this. He's already prophesied that Jesus is the Messiah. So you found Luke chapter 7. Let's find verse 18 and we'll read together. Then John's disciples told him about all of these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people, diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits. He granted sight to many of blind people. And he replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen, what you have heard. The blind receive their sight. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. People with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, dead are raised. The poor are told the good news and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And after John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, see, I'm sending you my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. And I tell you among those born of women, no one is greater than John, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they'd been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts of the law had not been baptized him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. When we read this, 
And John the Baptist is asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? I mean, do you kind of feel like I do? I mean, John, you should know better, honestly. If anybody should know it, it feels like it should be you. You've got the story your mother would have told you about the angelic visitation and your miraculous birth because she was older and, and you heard about Mary's miraculous birth from your mother. I mean, these are some things that you would have known and you've met Jesus and you've preached about him. I just want to remind you that John had, had been bold in proclaiming who Jesus was. He didn't hold back at all. He looked at everybody and said, this is the one. Now, when we read about this in the Apostle John's gospel, this is a quick reminder for you because uh, the Apostle John and John the Baptist, not the same person, right? You have the disciple and the apostle. They're the same. The one whom Jesus loved. He's often referred to. John the Baptist is his relative who's the prophet, but I want you to just see what John the Baptist has said in John's gospel. Is that confusing enough for everybody? It is for me. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and rested upon him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and testified, this is the son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the lamb of God. So John has been bold already in preaching about the need of the Messiah who would come and that everyone was going to need him and that they needed to repent to get ready for his coming. He's also said, I was looking for the one whom the spirit of God was going to descend on and I saw it, it was Jesus. I heard the father say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, he's already given us that testimony. Pretty strong words, isn't it? But you know, at some point, John, confident in his belief, bold in his belief, has now had something come into his life that has changed everything. Well, what is that? Well, John's in prison. Luke doesn't give us that detail, but Matthew's gospel does. John's in prison because he'd confronted a local ruler of the day named King Herod. And he said to Herod, you're living an immoral life because you've taken your brother's wife to be your own. And so he's, he's confronting sin publicly, like a prophet should, right? I mean, that, that's the, the role of the prophet, is to be bold in their confrontation, and that's what he did, and, and he's in prison now, and ultimately, in that prison, he's going to lose his life, because Herod's wife can't stand the fact that there's somebody pointing out what's going on that is immoral about their lives. And she'll use a circumstance later on to have him beheaded. Now, some have tried to make this statement that John makes to his disciples about going and finding out if, if Jesus is really the Messiah. They've tried to say that John knew he was going to die. And so he wanted his disciples to be certain. I don't buy it. And the reason I don't buy that line of thinking is 
Because if John was wanting his disciples to be certain, he would have said, do you remember the guy that I said, behold, this is the Lamb of God, and you go find him, and you go start walking with him, and experience him, and you're going to see that what I said is true. I don't buy it. John is in a place of despair. John's in a place where really the world is, is kind of been reduced to a small prison cell. And I think that John, like so many of us, began to experience uncertainty. It made him question some things that he didn't question as a free man. When he's walking around, he doesn't feel this way. But now that his world has been reduced, fear, doubt, have crept in. And that's the way it is with you, isn't it? You know, if you woke up today and nobody's sick in your family, and your grades have been good in school and you got the scholarship for college and you've had a vacation and you got a, you got a, good, a good raise at work and your boss loves you and your wife loves you and your, you know, your kids love you. I mean, there's not much to worry about, is it? It's different though, when all of a sudden things start to get kind of squished in on us, aren't they? The promises of the Bible mean something different for us when we're in the dark night of the soul than they mean for us when everything's just good. I mean, that, that's just the way that it is. For instance, if you read Psalm 23 this morning, and that's the life I just described for you is, is, is things are going good, and you read, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's true, isn't it? It's absolutely true. But it's different, isn't it? When you begin to read that and everything is going good, you, you, you appropriate that for the future. You think about maybe, well, you know, I know that I'm gonna face that one day. I, I know that my parents are getting older. I know that I'm gonna have to deal with this in my life. That, that's a totally different line of thinking than when you're waiting in the doctor's office hoping that the test results tell you something that you're pretty sure they're gonna tell you. You're hoping there's something different. It means something different to hold on to it then. Well, that's what's happening with John the Baptist. When he got the report from his disciples about all the miracles and healings, he wanted reassurance because life had changed that was causing him to look at his situation differently and question some of the things that he knew just maybe a few weeks earlier. Look at verse 18 and what it says. He summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one to come? Or should we expect someone else? Well, are you the one to come? That's what they had been waiting on forever. That's what Messiah was going to be. From the time of Adam and Eve, the first prophetic utterance about the Messiah was given all the way back in the very first part of Genesis. There will be one who will come and he will crush the serpent's head with his heel. The one who has brought the, the temptation and, and caused you to, to, to fall into sin, he will be crushed one day. Abraham believed that promise as well when he was told all the nations of the world will be blessed by you. He was waiting for someone to come, come from his line. David saw that there was going to be a, a king that would be different than him who would come and rule in righteousness forever. They were looking, even through the time of the prophets, always looking ahead. And they knew that he would come. 
And not only would he bring salvation to the world, but he would bring justice to the world. And that's very important. From the time the angel prophesied to John's birth, of John's birth to his mother, he had one mission, prepare the way of the Lord. And if that's your mission, maybe you're stuck in a jail cell and you're wondering, my mission's not complete because there's still one more to come. If it's not you, maybe there will be one that will come. And maybe he's just thinking, if this is the end of my life, I've got to fulfill my calling. I think when the disciples came to Jesus and asked him plainly if, if he was the Messiah, the amazing thing to me is that Jesus didn't respond very plainly, did he? Hey, are you the one that's to come or should we wait for somebody else? And you expect Jesus to say yes or no. He never does what we expect. I imagine the disciples living at a level of frustration all the time. Could you just tell us something not in a parable, please? You know, we're not always that smart. Sometimes we fall asleep when you're talking and we don't, could you just break it down? Well, Jesus doesn't say that. Notice what he said though. Verse 22, there's something very important about this. Go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, dead are raised, poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. At this point, I want to just remind you of a couple of the miracles that Luke has chronicled for us. Do you remember that Jesus went to Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law? She had a fever and he, he told her, get up, and she began to, to rise and serve them. Do you remember that Jesus stayed in that city of Capernaum and it said that he laid his hands on many and healed them from their afflictions and diseases? You remember that? Uh, do you remember that we saw the four guys lower their friend through the house, the roof of the house? The paralytic was healed in front of everybody. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And then he said, but just so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, take up your mat and walk out of here. You're healed. And we talked about this last week, right, as well, when we, we saw the centurion's servant was healed. And the story after the centurion that, that we kind of just skipped over was that Jesus raised a dead man to life. I mean, that's quite a list of miracles that have happened here. But that may not be obvious from the text why that's important. I mean, it's cool. It's great that somebody is, is being healed. It's great that people are, are being cleansed of diseases and they're able to, to get up and take their mat and walk. I mean, that's great. But there's something more important for us to see. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, these things were prophesied. And they were prophesied in a way that said the, the coming Messiah would do certain things. Listen to, to what Isaiah 35 says. Then the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, water will gush in the wilderness and the streams in the desert, right? So by answering John the Baptist in the way that he did, Jesus is saying, I want you to know I'm exactly who you think I am. You know it and I know it. I'm the one who's done all of these things. John the Baptist knew these words as well as anyone who was a Jew. They'd studied this. They were waiting for this. The Old Testament was all they had, remember? And it's pointing to a day that's coming. And Jesus is saying, that day got here the day that I was born. Now look how God has inaugurated my ministry with these miracles. You don't need any further confirmation. 
But there are a couple of things about these messianic prophecies that sometimes troubled people because they felt like they were a little bit incomplete. You say, well, how could they be incomplete? He was raising people from the dead. Blind were receiving their sight. Lame were walking. I mean, that feels like A, B, C. I mean, we're just going right down the checklist, right? But there's something that the messianic prophecies also said, and it talked about there would be justice and vengeance and retribution. Justice, vengeance, and retribution. In fact, in the same chapter of Isaiah, just a few verses ahead of that, it says, say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God, vengeance is coming, God's retribution is coming, he will save you. Now, vengeance and retribution were going to be a part of what all the Israelites were looking forward to in their Messiah. For years, they'd been kicked around by all of their enemies. I mean, you read the Old Testament, you look at the, the present day of, of Jesus's time, they're, they're, they're just being abused by everybody and they're sick of it and they're ready for somebody to come and throw off the yoke of oppression. So John's saying, I mean, is it really you? Because there's hope that there was a Messiah that would come and not only take away the sins of the world, but I gotta be honest with you, a lot of people didn't feel like their sin was the most pressing issue. We do that. We feel like world events are the most pressing issue. We feel like uh, the political agenda that wants to assault everything that is good and holy and moral is, is, is really more important than the fact that people's sins can be removed from their lives by Jesus Christ the Savior. That changes things for eternity. And, and, and there are a lot of people in that day that, that were struggling with that. They're wrestling with that. And so John is maybe asking this because as a prisoner in a king who shouldn't be the king's house, he wonders, like, are you going to be the one that tosses off this oppression? Because it's getting very real for me. When Jesus ministered among the people of Galilee and Jerusalem, what we see over and over again is kindness, gentleness, and love. Kindness, gentleness, and love. Now, we might mistake those characteristics, meaning that Jesus is soft on judgment and retribution, and we'd be wrong about that. That day is coming. It hasn't come yet. Because remember, the Messiah is coming back. And the Messiah is going to return, and when he returns, it won't be in a lowly manger. He'll be recognized as King of kings, Lord of lords, every knee will bow, and he'll be riding a white horse, bringing an army with him to demolish the foes of God. That's coming. But aren't you grateful that while he still waits to, to get the order from God the Father to come back, there's still time for people to repent? You see, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, the scripture says. So when Jesus is is going around and, and being kind to people and gentle to people and loving to people. It's not that it, his judgment has not come. It is coming. It's not that he's forgotten about that, I should say. But there's time for people to experience this. Now, we might be in the same sort of predicament today. We look around and we see the lack of victory on on things that we feel like are very important in the world. And, and when you find yourself in that way, 
the author of the Psalms collected these things together and he included one, Psalm 73, written by Asaph. You may remember it because a number of years ago, I preached that song and, uh, psalm sorry, and attributed it to David for about an hour and a half, which was awesome because David didn't write it. And I had to make a public apology to Asaph later. It, it, you just imagine that David wrote all the Psalms, but he didn't. There are other people, but you know, let's just say the collector of the Psalms included Psalm 73 and you might remember what it says. You know what? I looked around at evil and my foot almost slipped and stumbled because I was sick of it. And I thought, why does God prosper the wicked? Why does God keep doing this? And he says, my feet came close to stumbling and, and he was having a crisis of faith, much like what, what we have. When we look at the world and, and we see these things or, or we're struggling in our lives and it seems like, God, I've faithfully served you. Why is my life in this way? And other people who don't serve you, Lord, it just seems like their lines fall in pleasant places. But Asaph said something amazing. I was struggling and I went back to the house of the Lord. That's where I found bedrock. That's where I found what I needed. And, and you know, this is the truth of, of the lives that we live is that sometimes godly people have marriages that fall apart. Sometimes godly people go bankrupt. Sometimes godly people struggle to raise their children. I mean, as you go through these things, this is part of life. You know what God doesn't give us is just miraculous powers so that these things don't touch us. They're gonna touch us sometimes. What he gives us is overcoming power to deal with the circumstances we're living in. If you live here long enough, you'll have a crisis of faith. You'll have a moment of despair. And many times people wonder, well, if I'm a Christian, why would I have doubts? But I wanna just remind you that doubts are part of faith. People ask me, do you have doubts? Yes, all the time. You don't? You didn't answer. You don't? Right? I mean, it's, it's part of it, isn't it? I mean, faith in, is something that we hold on to with confidence, right? But there are times where, where we doubt things. I read things in the Bible all the time where I think, what in the world does that mean? Lord, I don't understand it. I've spent seven years of my life in theological education, and I don't understand that. I feel like I should have a better grasp about that. And you know, we used to often sing a hymn that would say that our understanding would get better farther along, right? We'd understand it by and by. There, there's something about the life that we live where, where we're kind of, I guess, confronted with these things. I, for instance, can I just share a couple of your, mine with, with you that I've had lately? For instance, I wrote these down. Where's the Antichrist going to come from? I don't know. People ask me that all the time. My favorite is when you ask me if any of the last three presidents have been antichrist. <laughs> Please don't do that. I may give you a look and a tongue lashing. But maybe, may, maybe, I don't know. How about this? Where does America figure into the end times? I have no idea. Not in the Bible that I can understand. Will we be here? Will we be gone? What role does Russia play in the end times? I don't know. A lot of people are very certain about these things. I'm not. I'm just reading it over and over. God, how are you going to, 
to, to call us home? How are you going to have the rapture? What, what will it look like? I mean, we get glimpses of it. And here's what I have to come back to. I trust that God will sovereignly work those things out to his glory when he's ready to. That's it. Now, I can wonder about those things. And sometimes when, when you see Russia on the move and it looks like they're gonna take over all of Europe and I mean, you wonder like, oh, what is going on? What is happening? God, why are you allowing these things to happen? But all of these things, when we read them, while we may have doubts about them or we might go through a difficult circumstance that causes us to wonder about the goodness of God or God's provision, all of these things might mix with our faith and lead us to have the doubts. But I want you to notice a few things from this passage of scripture that I think help us to understand how to deal with that. First, did you notice how Jesus answered John's disciples? He didn't look at them and be like, come on guys, where have you been for the last couple of weeks? I mean, what is John's problem? What a baby. I mean, he's sitting in prison. He's gonna lose his head. Everybody's gotta die sometime. He doesn't do that. He doesn't chastise them. He doesn't make fun of them. He doesn't laugh at them. He answers them. Can I remind you of something today that I think is very, very important for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to remember? The God that you serve is big enough to handle any question you can throw at him. Nothing's off limits. You're not gonna stump God. It's not like you're gonna ask him a question and he's gonna go, oh, I'm gonna have to get back to you on that. We're gonna have to call a convention of the angels. We're gonna have to get Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're gonna huddle up, we'll get back to you. We've never thought about that. No one's ever asked that before. No one's ever struggled with that before. God's not put off by any of that. We, we can go to the Lord and we can ask a question now, it's not like you're gonna ask this question and, and God's gonna, uh, you know, kind of rebuff you for it. Or, I mean, is that what you do when your children ask you a question? Like, come on. No, we love you. We wanna ask you to answer that question. I'm glad you asked me because I'm the one who holds the answers is what he says. I'm glad you came to me. So I think that's one of my favorite songs that we sing often around here. It talks about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And there's this line in that song that says, all my fears and doubts, they can all come too, but they can't stay long because I'm here with you. That's what happens. When we come with our fears and doubts, it's not like God's like, oh, come on. He goes, welcome into my presence. I'm glad that you brought those here because I'm the one that can deal with them. I'm the one that can take you back to where you need to be. When you come to me, you've come to the right source. And that's the second thing that you've got to see from this passage. If God's big enough for our doubts, he can overcome them. And, and when we bring them, we can rest assured that he'll not turn us away because we have them or that we're having a crisis of faith or, or belief. Jesus was patient with John's doubts and helped him overcome them. But you notice what John did was right. I want you to see it. When his confidence began to fail him, he went straight to the source. He went straight to the source. Now, there are some other people that John could have called for help that day. When you read the scriptures, there are false gods that surround the hills all around Jerusalem. They're always talking about in the Old Testament, tearing down the high places. Why do they need to tear down the high places? It's idol worship out in the hills. 
He could have gone and consulted with one of the priests from the other gods and said, well, you know, have you heard anything new? Is there, is there anything that you think I might be missing? There were also things of the day called uh, spiritual mediums. And, and we would kind of look at that as like um, what people would call almost like psychics or, or, or you, you sometimes see the word medium thrown around even today. But John didn't call for somebody to come read his, his palm. He didn't read a horoscope. He didn't ask a false god. He went right to the source. I think that's what really bothers me about this great movement in our country today among people of faith. And they use this word all the time. And it's a dangerous word. I'm deconstructing my faith. I'm deconstructing my faith. Because I don't know what's right. So I'm going to start tearing it all apart. Well, the one thing I would tell you before you start throwing things out is why don't you just go right to the source? Jesus is the living word. So we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have the Bible. You can read this. That may be harder than deconstructing your faith though. You know what I mean? And sometimes we just want the easy way out. I'm just gonna take all this stuff out. But there's a line that Greg Laurie says that I think is so important. He once said, don't ever exchange what you don't know about God for what you do know about God. Never exchange and elevate what you are uncertain about for what you're certain about. Well, I'm not sure how God could have done this, so it means he couldn't, because could he be real? Well, I'm not sure how God's gonna work it out at the end. Does that mean he didn't work out at the beginning? I mean, you, you begin to do these things, and it leads you into a place you can't get out of. And here's a, a couple of things that I know about God that would just be good starters. Maybe you have a list for yourself, but I know this. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. You could just live in that line of that song, going to your Bible, and that would take you months to unpack. Jesus loves me. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would be saved and have everlasting life. That's a, a promise. It's a fact. I know that Jesus loves me. No one's ever died for me except for Jesus. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me. How can we trust the Bible? Well, it's funny you ask. I recently returned from a wonderful little trip to a place called Israel, and we went to a place called Qumran. Q-U-M-R-A-N. It's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. These ancient words have been preserved ever true for you. God's plan has been unwavering for you to know his heart, to know his word, so you could just go back there and, and just live there. Christ has loved us with an everlasting love. His death on the cross has changed our reality. Well, tough times are guaranteed. There will be dark nights of the soul. There will be crises of faith and belief. We will suffer anguish. How do we know that? Jesus did. All of the apostles did. We know that we will face death. How do we know that? Jesus did. All of the disciples did. We know that those things will, will come and test us because Jesus was tested and tempted. The apostles, the, the disciples, I mean, the, the heroes of the faith all went through these things. 
And yet, in the midst of it, they found faith that overcame. Go back to the source. Never exchanging what you're uncertain about for what you're certain about. God is faithful. And he will prove himself again and again. There's just one other thing, and we don't have time to unpack this fully this week, but I don't want to run past this. And let's just call part A of sermon done and part B beginning, okay? And I know you're looking at your clock and you're going, wow, we're going to be here a while. We're not. It's just one thing. Could you look at verse 28 again with me? I tell you among those born of women, no one is greater than John, but in the least of the kingdom of God is greater than he. You know, Jesus said something fascinating about this when he said, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist who was ever born, and yet John was no greater than the least in the kingdom. Why would he say that? Well, John is the forerunner. No one born like him at the time of Christ. I mean, it's just the two of them on this parallel track. It's unbelievable. And yet John's going to pass away before the coming of something very important. It's the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in your life. That's the promise. Remember Jesus telling the disciples, I got to go away so the Spirit can come. And the Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. John had moments where the Spirit was on him, but it's different. It is a, it's a different thing for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I have to leave for that to happen. When he rose from the dead and told the disciples that we got a gift, we get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and it's a, an amazing thing that John, who was incredible in his humanity, had his frailty exposed to be just like ours. And, and I want to just remind you that there's a danger when we follow anybody but Jesus because their humanity ultimately gets exposed. Over and over and over again, we read about the heroes of the faith and their greatness in faith, but we also read about how every one of them failed in something. That's on purpose. That's to remind us that there was no one perfect except Christ. And even when we go to the, the book of James, do you remember that James says, pray and pray in faith, believing. Pray for those who are sick. And he says, do you not remember that Elijah prayed for it to not rain for three and a half years, and it didn't. But there's a line in there that's very important. It says, Elijah was a man just like us, a humanity, a nature, just like ours, and yet he prayed and it didn't rain. He was just like us. He wasn't some just super special prophet. He had humanity just like ours. And we can't get caught following anybody but Jesus. You say, now why would you point that out after what we've just talked about? Well, there's a danger in it. We see it around our town. We've seen it in our convention of churches. Most recently, I think sometimes it's, it's easy to see it. I, and this was on my brain because I was watching a documentary recently talking about how easy it is for people to follow people. You know, Paul dealt with that in the letter to the Corinthians. You may remember it. He writes to them and he says, you know, uh, some of you are saying you're of Paul. Some of you are saying you're of Apollos and none of that matters. It's absolutely immaterial. doesn't matter. But there was something that he said in chapter four of 1 Corinthians that I'd missed all these years. He said, when you start following a person, 
What that actually leads to is arrogance and pride in your life. Doesn't, not even talking about the person's life, but in your life. How could that be? Well, I follow this teacher. Have you read what he said? Have you seen what she said? I mean, what they say about everything is so important, so good. And I've read every book they've ever written. And blah, blah, blah. I mean, listen, the best teachers have a humanity that's flawed. The best teachers have a frailty. Jesus says about John, there's nobody like him. And yet the least in the kingdom is greater than him. Don't elevate people. People will fail you. Jesus never will. I want to ask you if you would to bow your heads as we close. And we're going to take a few moments and just have a time of response. And I wonder today if you're maybe struggling with faith and doubt. Could it be that your doubts came in with you this morning? Well, the good news is, is they don't get to stay. Love drives out fear. And Jesus has loved you with an everlasting love. And so right now, if you're struggling with something, if you've been praying about something, if you're in the dark night of the soul, if you're in anguish this morning, don't exchange what you do know about God for what you're uncertain about this morning. The outcomes are in his hand. He will be faithful. He will be true. Why don't you just cast your cares upon him? He loves you. Could you just sit for a moment in the Father's love? Oh God, our God, rock of ages, Savior, How we call on your name right now asking you to do great things for us we need you Lord some of us this morning have have brought in a bag full of doubts our hearts are heavy we don't see a way forward we're uncertain about what you're doing in the world would you remind us of something most of us learned when we were toddlers? That Jesus loves us, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Thank you for loving us, Christ Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. We lift up your name as the name above all names. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.